Father, I just thank you so much for your word and for the section of scripture that we've been able to study this week, Lord. I just, just thank you for the truths that are within your word, and I just ask that it be an encouragement to everyone today. We love you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so before I get started, I want to thank my husband, Joe. <laughs> and his sermons for, and all of the notes and the use of all of his commentaries. And I also used um, Steve and Jason's preaching on some of this as well. So I just want to put that out there that none of this is new to me. Uh, for, from me, it's, I've been using a lot from them. So as is often the case, when I'm studying for a lecture, I'm confronted with the depths of truth in the Bible, and I stand in awe of the complexity it contains. It amazes me how we have one passage of scripture that is jam-packed with theological truths. I feel like a kid on Christmas, Christmas morning when you wake up and you have all of these gifts under the tree. My family was so large, we had a lot of gifts under our tree, and it never took us very long to unwrap them. So, like my family, let's quickly unwrap all of the gifts that we have before us. The gifts we have been given today are truths that transcend time. Transcendent in that these verses contain deep truths about God that were so meaningful for Abram at the time it occurred, in addition to important reminders for the Israelites at the time Moses read this to them before entering the promised land, and extremely significant foundational truths for every Christian throughout time. In fact, many deep theological truths are explained in the New Testament using what occurred with Abram in the verses we have studied this week. Today, I want to focus on three time-transcending truths found in the passage that we studied. Let's start unwrapping. Truth number one, and we find this in chapter 14, verses 17 through 24. Only God Most High is worthy of our worship and praise. We ended last week with Abram rescuing Lot through his victory over Shadorlamer and the kings that were with him. And today, our passage begins with Abram's encounter with two very different kings in the valley of Sheveh. Abram is met by the king of Sodom and the king of Salem. To begin, it's interesting to note that Sodom means burning and Salem means peace. That alone gives a clear indication of the contrast between these two places and a hint at the difference in the kings that come to meet Abram. It's through Abram's distinct reactions to these very different kings that we see the one true God who is worthy of all worship and praise. First, we see his interaction with the never-before-mentioned Melchizedek. Melchizedek brings wine and bread for the men returning from battle, and he also has a special blessing for Abram. Melchizedek is the king of Salem, which is thought to be the geographical location of what would one day be Jerusalem. In addition to being king of Salem, he is also stated to be priest of God Most High. Melchizedek is the first person ever mentioned as a priest of God Most High in the Bible. The phrase God Most High is mentioned four times in this section. Once when describing Melchizedek as a priest of God Most High, then twice in the blessing given to Abram, and again in Abram's response to the king of Sodom. The Hebrew term for God Most High is El Elyon, 
And Melchizedek specifically refers to El Elyon, the creator or possessor of heaven and earth. He is acknowledging the one true God who sits high on his throne above all else. Abram clearly sees this priest as worshiping the one true God, his Yahweh. Melchizedek is a true priest who not only performs a priestly function by blessing Abram, but he also gives God all the glory for the victory Abram just experienced when he says in verses 19 and 20, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. We immediately see that Abram's response to this blessing is to give a tenth of the spoils to, to Melchizedek. Abram acknowledged Melchizedek as an authentic representative of the one true God. Through his offering of a tenth of the spoils, he had just accumulated through this victory. This act of worship showed how Abram knew his victory was from God. And in return, his response was one of worship and praise through giving. He gave God and God alone all of his worship and praise. In order to understand this truth in full, we need to take a closer look at this mysterious Melchizedek. You may remember from Numbers that God establishes a priesthood for the Israelite nation to serve as the mediator between God and man. The priesthood held a unique role in the temple, and only those who were descendants of Levi could act as priests. In addition to their role, when the nation of Israel entered the promised land, the Levites did not receive an inheritance of land, but instead were to be given a tithe from all the other Israelites, which would be their inheritance. The Israelites brought their sacrifices to the Levitical priests to make atonement for their sins, and they did this repeatedly over the course of their life. It would not be an exaggeration to say that after the establishment of the Levitical priesthood, in the mind of a Jew, the only way to access God would be through a Levitical priest. Abram's interaction with Melchizedek occurred before the Levitical priesthood was ever established. Yet clearly, Abram acknowledges Melchizedek as a true priest through whom he worshipped God. Melchizedek is not mentioned again until almost 1,000 years later when David, in his prophetic messianic Psalm 110, declares that the promised Messiah will be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So all we know about Melchizedek from the Old Testament is what we have here in Genesis, where he serves as a high priest, as a priest of God Most High, and from the messianic Psalm where he is somehow tied to the Messiah. It isn't until almost another 1,000 years that the writer of Hebrews explains the significance of this historical encounter between Abram and Melchizedek. Melchizedek, whose very name means righteousness, is actually a foreshadow of Jesus, the promised Messiah. And he is used by the writer of Hebrews to prove the superiority of the priesthood of Jesus to their Levitical priesthood. Jesus was not a Levite, and they didn't understand how they could worship God without a Levitical priest. The people wanted to have Jesus plus their old ways of worship, and the writer of Hebrews is saying that Jesus fulfills all the promises of God. You have him, he is enough. The writer of Hebrews uses this passage that we've studied today to prove his point that Jesus is a superior priest. If Abram 
their patriarch could worship the one true God before the establishment of the Levitical priesthood through Melchizedek, who was not a Levite, then they could worship Jesus, the promised Messiah, who was a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. If Melchizedek was good enough for their patriarch Abraham, then Jesus is even better. Melchizedek was just a foreshadow of the real deal, Jesus. God uses Melchizedek, a non-Levitical priest, and his priestly interaction with Abram to establish a priesthood that would allow future generations to understand the superiority of the priesthood of Jesus. It was Jesus, the great high priest, not a Levitical priest, which was necessary for their worship of God Most High. There's so much more to understanding Melchizedek than we have time to cover. So I just want to highly recommend listening to my husband Joe's sermon from Hebrews 7. In it, he explains the mystery of Melchizedek in great detail. After meeting Melchizedek, we see Abram's interaction with the king of Sodom. Instead of coming to Abram with a heart of gratitude for this victory, we see the king of Sodom attempting to make a deal with Abram by saying he would just take the people and Abram can keep all the goods. Again, it is in Abram's response where we see his allegiance to the one true God. Abram wants nothing to do with this worldly king of Sodom. And he makes it perfectly clear through his statement in verses 22 to 24 when he said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. Such a contrast between these two kings. Abram was not swayed by a desire to be wealthy and keep the spoils of Sodom. Instead of making this deal with the king of Sodom, Abram chose to take nothing. He totally distanced himself from this wicked man. This shows Abram's heart was in the right place. He acknowledges God most high through his worship of a tenth given to Melchizedek, and he refuses to associate himself with the king of Sodom. Abram wanted God most high alone to get the glory for all he had been given. No man could take credit for what God would do through Abram. And Abram was making sure of this by saying, no deal to the king of Sodom. This brief interaction with these kings has significance not only for Abram, but for the nation of Israel and for us as well. This event was an example of worship. Abram, out of the overflow of his heart's gratitude to God Most High, worshipped God by giving of his victory spoils, and he did everything in his power to stay away from the worldly king of Sodom, so that El Elyon, the creator of heaven and earth, would get the glory for everything. This must have been a good reminder to Israel that they should worship the one true God, and they should not have anything to do with the pagan world which they were about to enter a reminder to acknowledge the true God and him alone for all that they had. It should also be an example to us to worship God and give him all the glory for all he has done for us through Jesus. Jesus is our great high priest, and all of our worship and praises do him. We should not befriend this world and give opportunity for praise to be given anywhere else. We owe our God and Savior everlasting honor and praise for everything, even our faith.
And that leads us to the next transcending truth. First, we saw not only God most high, we saw only God most high is worthy of our worship and praise. And next, truth number two is God's imputed righteousness comes through faith. And we find that in verses one through six of chapter 15. After his encounter with Melchizedek and the king of Sodom, we begin chapter 15 with the word of the Lord coming to Abram in a vision. The Lord begins with, Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. So immediately we know Abram must be fearful of something, and God is there to comfort him through his words. But what is Abram afraid of? Imagine what Abram had just been through. He had just won this huge battle, and death was surrounding him. And the reality of his own death may have been on the forefront of his mind. Retaliation by these kings was a definite possibility, and this could have been what was causing his fear. God is assuring Abram that he is going to protect him, and he will have a great reward. He's comforting him and reminding him of the promises he made. God promised to make Abram a great nation, but now Abram can't see how this promise will be fulfilled. The reality of death is before him, and based on Abram's response to God, we know he is contemplating what that will look like in light of God's promises to him. The Bible does not tell us what Abram is fearing, but given the timing of this vision from God and the, the discussion which takes place, it appears as though Abram is questioning in his heart how God will keep his promise to make him a great nation. In verses 3 of 15, Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Abram's not doubting that God will keep his promise. He's just not sure how it will come about. And by his response, we see his concern for not having a son. And the only heir he has is his male servant, Eleazar, who, according to custom, would be his heir. I love how real scripture is. In chapter 14, we see Abram defeating many kings and worshiping the Lord through tithe and giving him glory for all that has occurred with the battle, in addition to his stand for righteousness by not dealing with the king of Sodom. Then in chapter 15, we see him in a state of fear and questioning. How many times have you had a great victory and a wonderful time in the word and gained spiritual strength and confidence only to turn around and have a fear over the future? and how God is going to fulfill his promises. Abram did not doubt that God would keep his promise, but his perception here was based on his circumstances. And if he chose to lean on his own understanding, it didn't make sense. So his inquiry of God was not unbelief. It was his attempt to not lean on his own understanding. Just like Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Abram was acknowledging God. And in this passage, God clearly makes his path for Abram straight. God, the creator of the universe, takes Abram out to look at the stars, his very own day four creation, and says, Count them if you can. God, who created these stars by his very own words, is now by his very own words telling Abram, your offspring will be as countless as the stars I have created. In chapter 14, 
Abram worships the Most High God, creator of heaven and earth, through his offering of Mel- to Melchizedek. And here, in chapter 15, we have God, the creator, reminding Abram who he is and that he doesn't need to fear because God is his shield. God will protect him, and God will do as he promised by making Abram a great nation. He also assures him it will be through his very own son, not through his servant Eliezer. Just as sure as he created the heavens and the stars above, his word is true, and he will make Abram a great nation, more numerous than the very stars that he placed in the sky. Can you imagine how Abram must have felt? Abram believed in the creator of heaven and earth. He trusted in the one true God. He knew what God had done for him. And as he, call, as he called him out of the land of pagan idolatry, and now God is saying, fear not, I am your shield. Your reward shall be great. Look at the stars, so shall your offspring be. Abram, you have nothing to fear because God the creator is protecting you and he has your back. You will be a great nation and it will come through your very own seed, not through your servant. And what was Abram's response? We read it in verse 6. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. We could spend all day on this one verse. I stated earlier that Abram was not doubting God when he questioned things. And we know this because in Romans chapter 4, we read in verse 22 20 to 22, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. He was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why faith was counted to him as righteousness. If Abram had doubted God through unbelief, then his faith would not have been counted to him as righteousness. Instead of unbelief, he was fully convinced that God would do as he promised. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. This verse in Genesis has been referred to as the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. Abram believed God. He believed that God would do what God revealed he would do. And because of this belief, because of his faith... God, in his mercy and grace, counted Abram as righteous. Abram was made right with God because of his faith in what God said he would do, not because of anything that Abram had done. Abram did not earn the righteousness God granted to him. God credited righteousness to Abram because of his faith in what God revealed. The same was true for the Israelites who were hearing this before entering the promised land, and the same is true for us today. God reveals his truth to sinful man, and man is made right with God through faith in what God has revealed through his word. We are all accountable before the holy God most high for what we put our faith in. Do we believe in the revelation of God most high and place our faith in him and him alone, Or do we place our faith in our own human efforts? We have the complete canon of scripture, the very words of God, and God has revealed the way of salvation comes through faith and the finished work of his only begotten son, Jesus. 
John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Abram took God at his word, and he was justified by his faith. We are justified in the same way today. We believe God's revealed word to us through the scriptures about his son, Jesus Christ, and this faith results in God imputing or placing Christ's righteousness into our account. God's imputed righteousness comes through faith and faith alone. It always has, and it always will. This account of Abram being made right with God through his faith is used by Paul in the New Testament to teach both the Romans and the Galatians that man is justified by faith alone. Abram was a man who was in a state of fear and questioning over his future, and God promised to him that all of the nations would be blessed through Abram's very own seed. Abram believed God. Abram took God out of his word. Abram trusted God, and God saved him and declared him righteous. Think about this. Abram saw the reality that he was old. He was as good as dead. He was facing the reality that he was too old to have children. He didn't understand how God was going to fulfill his promise. But God, the creator, who created the heavens and the earth, the one who created all of the stars and the heavens, through his very word, reassured Abram that he would do what he said he would do. God allowed Abram to get to the point in his life where he knew it was physically impossible for him and Sarai to have a baby. So that Abram's faith was not in human possibility, but only in the God through whom all things are possible. That is where Abram's faith was sure. His hope was in God and his promise, not in himself. So God and God alone would get all of the glory for everything. Just like Abram wanted God and God alone to get the credit for his wealth in the battle of chapter 14, God wanted all men to see that he alone should get the glory for bringing about the seed of Abram through whom all the nations would be blessed, the seed through whom the Messiah comes and we have been blessed. Only God could give Abram a son now. One commentator I read said, and I quote, Abraham might very well have cried out, I can't, and he would have been right. Instead, Abraham cried, God can. This perspective, which sees God as the touchstone of reality, is to characterize our faith as well. End of quote. When we come to a saving faith, we come to the same realization we can't do it on our own. We can't live that perfect life of complete obedience to God and his word, but God did it for us through his son, Jesus. We can't, but God can. Praise be to God that it's by grace through faith that we are saved. Amen. Amen. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Again, it's God and God alone who gets all of the credit for everything, even our faith. Just like Abram didn't want the king of Sodom boasting in making Abram rich, God in his infinite wisdom does not want us boasting in our salvation because even the faith we have in him is a gift from him. He has done it all. So he should get all the glory and praise. God's imputed righteousness comes through faith. 
Abram's faith was in God's capability to keep his promise of giving him an heir through his very own seed. We will see in future lessons how even though Abram falters and wavers in his walk with the Lord, that God is faithful to keep his promises because his promises do not rely on human efforts. And this leads to the last point. Our first truth was only God most high is worthy of our worship and praise. The second truth was God's imputed righteousness comes through faith. And the last truth is the promises of God are trustworthy. We find that in verses 7 through 20 of, verse 5, of chapter 15. In verses 7 through 20, we have a very important foundational passage in Scripture called the Abrahamic Covenant. God has made promises of blessing, seed, and land to Abram. He has repeated these promises to him over and over, and now we have the establishment of the covenant God makes with Abram to seal this promise he has made. God begins in verse 7 with a reminder to Abram of who he is. Genesis 15:7, and he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. God reminds Abram that he is the one who has brought him to this very place. He has brought Abram out of the land of pagan worship and brought him to a faith in him, the one true God, God most high. He is the God who has promised to make him a great nation and bless all the nations through him in addition to giving his descendants this very land. Then we have Abram's simple response, asking God, how will he know that he will actually possess this land that he truly believed God had promised to give him? To answer his question, God gives Abram some very interesting instructions to follow, and Abram does exactly what the Lord tells him to. He takes a heifer, a female goat, and a ram, all three years of age, a turtle dove and a pigeon. He cuts the heifer, the goat, and the ram in half, laying them out, half on one side and half on the other. This practice, which would have been familiar to Abram, was customary when two parties were making a covenant with one another. It was literally called cutting a covenant. After cutting the animals, both parties would walk through the center to prove their commitment and signify that if they should break their part of the agreement, then they should face the same fate as these animals that they were walking through. So Abram was has followed all of God's instructions, and he spends the day fighting off birds of prey as they're swooping in to eat the carcasses. As the sun goes down, Abram falls into a deep sleep, and it is while he sleeps that God reveals to him his plan for his descendants. Verses 12 through 15, and behold, dreadful and dark and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. In his answer to Abram of the question of how will Abram know that he will possess the land, God tells Abram of his predetermined plans. Abram asked how he would know, and here God is laying it all out before him. This is how you know because of this plan I have for your descendants. This is what is going to happen, and this is the time frame for which it will occur. 
God informs Abram of his plans for his numerous descendants, his plans for the nation that oppresses them, and his plans for Abram personally. Concerning Abram's descendants, God says they will be numerous, they would be taken captive and made slaves for 400 years, they would be freed and come out with great wealth. Then in the fourth generation, God would give them this land as their possession. Concerning the nation that oppresses them, God will bring judgment on them. Just as he previously promised, he would bless those who bless Abram's descendants and he would curse those who curse them. Concerning Abram himself, God says he would die in peace at an old age. It's important for God to tell these things to Abram as he's establishing his covenant. This foretelling by God of his plan for Abram's descendants must have been reassuring for Abram to see that not only was God going to give him his very own son, but God had a predetermined plan established for all of Abram's descendants. The waiting that Abram experienced prior to God telling him of this plan and the turmoil of fighting off the birds of prey was symbolic of what Abram's descendants would go through. God was assuring Abram that his descendants would possess this land, but that it was not going to happen without much turmoil. It was also important for the nation of Israel to hear these things. Remember that Moses read this to them before they entered the promised land to help the Israelites understand who they were as a nation and the plan that God had for them. At the time Moses read this to the Israelites, it served as a reminder to them that everything they had just experienced in Egypt was part of God's sovereign plan and part of his fulfillment of the covenantal promises made to Abram for his descendants to possess the very land which they were about to enter. We know from Exodus that the Israelites were oppressed and miserable in Egypt and that God heard them. We read in chapter 2 of Exodus, verses 23 through 25, During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. They could see that everything they had been through was part of God's plan, and God had done exactly as he told Abram he would do. They had been sojourners in the land of Egypt, which was not their land. They had been slaves. They had been afflicted for 400 years. God did bring judgment on the nation of Egypt, and they did come out of Egypt with great possessions. God bringing them out of Egypt was God remembering this very covenant that he made with Abram. This had to be encouraging for the Israelites that God keeps his promises and he will fulfill his covenant to Abraham to give them this land. God is faithful and trustworthy. It would also explain to them that God's timing and all of this was predetermined. The reason it took so many years for this to occur was because, as God explained in verse 16, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. God, in his infinite mercy, was withholding his judgment on a wicked nation, waiting for them to repent. That's what's being explained here. The Amorites were extremely wicked people who came through Noah's son, Ham. They were descendants of Ham's son, Canaan, who lived in the land, and God was waiting for a period of roughly 400 years, giving them time to repent. We serve this same loving God today, who we know from 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 
So we can be sure that God will fulfill his promises to us in the same way he is fulfilling his promise to Abram and the nation of Israel. After God lays out what's going to happen to the nation of Israel, he then proceeds with the covenantal ceremony. Remember that the custom would be that both parties of the covenant would walk through the halved carcasses. But we read in verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. The smoking fire pot and flaming torch were representative of God's actions. This covenant was not conditional to Abram keeping any part of it. Remember, Abram was sleeping during this time. This is God's covenant, and it depends only on God bringing it to fruition. Abram asked God how he could be sure that God would keep his promises to him, and God showed him by cutting this covenant and establishing it as a unilateral, eternal covenant. On that day, God made his covenant with Abram and promised this land to his very own descendants, who he promised would be more numerous than the stars he had created. The portion of land described here is much bigger than the land the Israelites have today. All of the land God promised belongs to Israel, and one day, when Christ returns, they will possess it entirely, because God has promised it. Why is it so important for us to see that God remembers his covenant to Abram? Because if God has not kept his word to Abram, then he is not trustworthy to keep his new covenant promise to us. In his book, Be Obedient, Warren Wearsby says, God's covenant with Abraham stands no matter what Israel believes. The covenant is unconditional. Its fulfillment does not depend on man's faithfulness In like manner, the new covenant established by Christ is dependable whether people accept it or not. Those who put their faith in Jesus Christ enter into that covenant and receive eternal salvation, an eternal inheritance, and eternal glory. So here we are. We've unwrapped all of these truths that transcend time. Only God Most High is worthy of our worship and praise. God's imputed righteousness comes through faith, and the promises of God are trustworthy. God Most High, who is worthy of all our praise and worship, has given us his plan of salvation for mankind through his very own word. Just like Abram, we have it all laid out in front of us. Just like Abram, we do not need to fear what the future holds because we know the end of the story. We can have an unwavering faith in God Most High, fully convinced in his trustworthy promises. If we believe in Jesus as our Savior, we will be made right with God and have Christ's righteousness credited to our account. And we can be sure that God Most High will keep all of his promises to us because his promises do not rely on human efforts, but only on him. And he is trustworthy. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God Most High, you are worthy of all of our praise and worship. Lord, we thank you for these truths that are so meaningful for us today. Please help each of us as we leave today. Help us to be praising you for all that you have done through your son, Jesus. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.